You're listening to Energy 360 from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm Jane Nakano, your host this week. Today, we'll be discussing the current state of energy and energy markets in Southeast Asia. In the past decade, Southeast Asia countries have experienced a rapid economic growth coupled with an equally high rise in the region's energy demand, which is expected to continue for the coming decades. The Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN, has set a goal of increasing the share of renewable energy to 23% in its total primary energy supply by 2025. Also, several ASEAN countries have signed a Paris Agreement with the goal of reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. However, Southeast Asia appears to be matching the increased energy demand with an increased reliance on coal. Casting doubt on the region's ability to meet either of these goals without serious policy intervention. So joining us today to shed light on these and other related issues is Ashish Sethia, who's the head of research on Asian Pacific at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Jane. Uh, and hello, everyone. So, um, it's a very dynamic region uh, that you're looking at, and also you're based in Singapore now. But so how do you see the region's energy and electricity mixes evolving in the future? Um, Southeast Asia is a particularly important region in the Asia-Pacific today, and perhaps globally, if I may say so, uh, because the energy demand in Southeast Asia is growing rapidly, um, given the trends of uh, increasing GDP as well as population growth. But its propensity towards fossil fuel is also perhaps growing, growing uh, proportionally. Um, depending on the country you're looking at in the Southeast Asian region, power demand is expected to grow anywhere between 1.5% to 8% per annum uh, based on BNF estimates. If you believe the governments, the estimates are even higher. Um, and just between the four key countries, there. Um, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Philippines, we expect almost $430 billion of investment which is needed in the power generation capacity between 2017 and 2040. Um, we also expect um, renewable energy generation capacity to grow significantly and raise its share from almost 30% in 2017 to um, almost 50% in 2040. But that is only possible if the governments do not intervene um, and put policies which impede the growth of renewable energy and let them compete purely on ba based on economics. Because as we have observed country after country around the world, renewable energy continues to get cheaper. And if the governments let it play its role in the energy mix, they, they, they are expected to grow. What are some of the uh, factors that may you know, make some of these governments wonder uh, intervene or perhaps interfere with, uh, you know, the market forces that may otherwise push, you know, further growth? Um, there are at least two or three important things there. One is um, the government's essential inclination to a domestic industry if, for example, a certain country has massive coal mining industry, then it would want to continuously support it uh, and build more coal power capacity, particularly in times when um, other countries are importing less and less of their fuel. 
Um, so they will have to create domestic demand for their fuel if the mining industry has to be sustained, for example. Um, so that could be one issue. Um, the other is we have seen in Southeast Asian region in particular that international players and countries uh, outside Southeast Asia who are not building coal power capacity in their domestic markets today are willing uh, without any problems uh, ex to export this capacity or this technology or equipment to Southeast Asian countries. Uh, using the argument that energy needs of these countries are growing and coal still needs to be used on these countries. Um, so domestic governments can have a hand to play, international governments can have a hand to play as well, particularly if they are willing to provide cheaper financing, uh, which could accelerate technologies like coal even further. Um, but as I said earlier, if, uh, if a fair chance is given to renewable energy, then we uh, expect it to grow quickly. Uh, so, uh, which of the countries uh, do you think have been more successful in uh, increasing the proportion of sh uh, renewables in their energy mix? And, and I guess in, in that sense, like which of the countries are struggling more than the average, if you want? And what are factors that separate the two groups? So, within Southeast Southeast Asia, I would say that um, Thailand has done a really good job in terms of increasing uh, renewable energy penetration. The country has probably um, 10 gigawatts of installed renewable energy capacity already, including large hydro. Uh, but it also has um, the highest uh, installed solar capacity over 3,000 megawatts uh, already. And uh, the factor which really helped the growth of the industry in Thailand was one, um, obviously a generous feed-in tariff, uh, which may or may not be sustainable. Uh, but also clear policy targets in the country. However, we are now seeing that um, the po government perhaps is, um, you know, reconsidering how much renewable energy it will build. Be, it will build in the future, and um, we have to wait and see uh, because they are working on a new power development plan, and it is to be launched this year. Uh, and we'll see how ambitious the new targets are. Uh, but there's some skepticism in the industry that the government may roll back the targets a little bit because. Um, the feed-in tariffs are quite high. But I must add that if the government uses auction as the mechanism to build new capacity, uh, we think solar in Thailand is already quite cheap. The other country I should mention is Philippines, which has also been able to add um, diversified sources of renewables, including geothermal, solar, wind, um, and, and hydro and biomass as well. Um, they had a great few years over the last two or three years in building solar capacity in particular, again driven by relatively high feed-in tariffs. Um, but I, th I think right now in the country there's a bit of policy vacuum because feed-in tariffs have not been continued forward and auctions haven't been really introduced in, in big quantities yet. And the government is pondering whether it should build a renewables portfolio standard. Um, so there's a bit of vacuum in the country. Um, with regards to countries which have not done that well, at the moment, Indonesia is uh, one which comes to mind, probably the biggest uh, power system in Southeast Asia, but a lot of cheap coal as well. So there are considerations on jobs, there, uh, there's consideration on how expensive renewable energy is. Um, the government has thought of promoting renewable energy through feed-in tariffs, but hasn't uh, translated that support in terms of actual build-out of capacity. Um, 
so we'll have to wait and watch in uh, indonesia and then vietnam which where power demand is growing very very quickly uh, by almost 10% uh, over the last few years and is expected to grow quickly uh, in the future as well is trying a feed in tariff policy as well but uh, the success has been limited till date in terms of installations maybe that will change in the future so um i actually wasn't as aware of uh, renewables portfolio standards being uh, uh, potential mix uh, is that gaining traction uh, uh or is it just when you mentioned that in the context of philippines is it just very uh early stage i i guess for that particular country it's early stage but any other countries looking at that in a, in a on the policy menu um so not a lot but philippines has already done certain calculations and um they have come up with um certain internal drafts of the policy and 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 try to um calculate how much renewable energy will be needed and how much should be integrated on the grid um so all those calculations have been done i think where um where there is a lack of clarity is it's fine to say that the utilities need to buy x amount of renewable energy as a proportion of their total energy purchases uh but how do you incentivize project developers to come and build the generation projects um and it's fine to not have a feed in tariff uh but then you have to have a very clear um auction policy with very clear yearly targets so so the most successful auctions policies in the world where you get good prices are policies where um you have a long term target uh, like in india 100 gigawatts of uh, solar that they want to commission by 2022 but every um, the developers can see pipeline that they can develop or at least the pipeline of auctions they can bid into um next year and the year after um and you see that there's a high correlation between how much capacity is installed and essentially uh, what the yearly targets are and how clear the pipeline is or how much visibility developers have on the pipeline so you cannot have one big target uh let's say x gigawatt by a certain year and then not follow that up with you know regular um uh, frequency of auctions or or capacity allocation mechanisms So what has been the consensus and different approaches in the region when it comes to the sort of climate side uh in other words uh you know how are some of the countries uh, trying to address the issue of climate change um in terms of policy there is a policy mechanism that has to be used uh, to uh, essentially reduce the impacts of climate change and uh, there doesn't seem to be a consensus and uh, there are various things on the menu uh, if when you look at, uh, across the con- countries um obviously southeast asia is quite vulnerable to the negative impacts of climate change particularly given uh, low per capita gdp uh, for example but the governments also want to um raise per capita gdp provide energy access and that's why you know they don't uh, sometimes see coal uh, as a necessary um evil if i may say so uh because it will probably help them to meet some of those targets uh but at the moment we observe that almost uh, 3 billion dollars or so of capital is invested in renewable energy in south east southeast asian region every year uh if the governments have very clear not only long term targets as i said earlier but very specific uh action plans and yearly targets then uh my belief is that um 
capital deployment can be raised three or four times uh, relatively easily uh, by developers if the governments have very clear uh, policies and targets in the region. Is emissions trading part of the mix uh, for some of these countries in the region? Um, not really. Renewable energy certificates have been talked about, um, and they can uh, have some potential in policy discussions. Carbon um, taxation has also been talked about. Um, Singapore has introduced a carbon tax already. Um, other countries may be far behind in terms of putting in that policy, especially countries which are very dependent on, um, for example, export revenues um, from commodities, uh, whether coal or gas. Um, so, so the region is a bit behind in terms of policy discussions on things like carbon trading, but uh, renewable energy certificates has been tried and uh, or has been discussed in other countries and uh, carbon taxes um, already a reality in Singapore. And uh, you know you're based in Singapore and that's you know one of the uh, uh, emerging sort of hubs for global LNG trade, uh, very exciting uh, part of the region and also from the the global. Uh, gas community perspective, the region as a whole is one of the emerging demand centers. Uh, could you share with us you know, sort of, you know, how you see the role of the region? Um, what are specific ways that you, you see that the demand may de- uh, develop, um, including market and perhaps even technology factors that are on the horizon? Um, that's a great question because I do spend a lot of my time looking at LNG globally. Um, and um, Bloomberg New Energy Finances team uh, estimates that the import of LNG in Southeast Asia will grow from almost 5.7 million tons last year to almost 45 million tons by 2030. So that's a very significant increase. Um, initially, that increase is driven by uh, both Singapore and Thailand, which have specific reasons for importing more LNG. Um, Thailand has a dwindling domestic resource in gas production, um, and it's very difficult to build coal power in Thailand, uh, given public opposition um, and environmental issues there. Um, so gas is the mainstay or the workhorse of the power system there, uh, and the government wants to keep on expanding on the gas power capacity, um, but that means that dependence on LNG will continue to increase. So Thailand is already importing a fair bit of LNG. Um, Singapore has another set of reasons. It imports LNG through pipelines from Indonesia and Malaysia, um, over the next um, seven to ten years, uh, many of these contracts will expire, and demand domestically is also rising in Indonesia and Malaysia. So they wouldn't be able to perhaps export uh, the same amount of uh, gas through pipelines to Singapore. So to de-risk itself, Singapore has already started LNG imports and it's expanding capacity um, in terms of it LNG imports. Um, and then other countries, even Indonesia, which is an exporter of a uh, large export of LNG today. Uh, probably in the mid-2020s, we'll need to start importing LNG. And other countries like Vietnam, uh, Philippines, Myanmar might also import LNG from the early 2020 onwards. Um, it, so, so overall volume-wise, uh, you know, it seems like uh, the region will import a lot more LNG. There are always questions asked on the competitiveness of LNG as a fuel in the region. And that's a very valid question to ask. Um, and I would say that Singapore obviously has tried to position itself as a trading hub for the whole Asia-Pacific region um, and has invested a lot of effort and time in doing that. And I think those efforts are starting to pay off slowly. Um, and it would be a great development for the region if 
uh, fairly transparent pricing signal is available uh, from the Singapore uh, region and the market uh, because that will help uh, project developers, investors, uh, the trading community on the commodity side to measure how much demand could be created in the region. Um, and, and, a, and a fair and transparent pricing signal is a very important part of that discussion. Are they mostly looking at sort of a onshore, or are they also starting to look at uh, sort of a, uh, different types of uh, arrangements or technologies? Um, so, on building onshore terminals has import terminals has been uh, the historic way of importing LNG, uh, but we have seen not only in Southeast Asia but uh, other markets of um, uh, in developing countries, for example, in Pakistan, Bangladesh, Egypt, Jordan parts of Latin America that floating storage and regasification technology on uh, on the LNG import side is uh, gaining a lot of traction. Uh, there is a very simple fundamental reason for that technology gaining traction because if you build a fairly large onshore LNG import terminal, you would probably invest a um, few hundred million, probably even a billion dollars or more in building that onshore terminal. Um, so your cash outflow when you are building that terminal is quite high in in the initial period of the project development. Whereas if you want to uh, import LNG using a floating storage and regasification, uh, you essentially can charter a ship and you can charter a ship for six months or you can charter it for six years or you can charter it for 20 years depending on um, where you see demand in your country. So you don't really have a lot of cash outflow in the initial years because these are leased contracts and you can charter a ship for as long as you like. That also takes away the risk of developing an onshore infrastructure and then not utilizing it fully in the future if demand is not growing as you expect it to grow in a country, uh, developing country in Southeast Asia, for example. Um, and if you are using an FSRU to import LNG today, um, then you know your charter agreements or leasing agreements, when they run out, uh, you may choose not to renew them if you don't have enough demand. So it's just de-risks the whole uh, infrastructure um, issue in Southeast Asia using that technology. As far as the type of contracts go, um, are many of the Southeast Asian countries whose initial demand could be, or the demand would be much more sort of incremental, if you will, in the growth pattern, are they uh, likely to go for longer-term contracts or a more of a spot-based approach? So we would say that it is quite possible that uh, emerging market importers whether they're in Southeast Asia or other emerging markets in South Asia or Latin America or Middle East, um, may not sign 20-year long-term contract anymore. Um, they have the option to do so, but they might not do so because um, there is a bit of risk in terms of where energy demand itself will be in 10, 15, 20 years' time. So they might not want to lock themselves off in a long-term contract. Also, the general understanding in the market is um, that LNG prices are not expected to go back to 20, 18 to 20 dollars per uh, MMBTU anytime soon. Um, and there's a significant capacity that is coming online. So next five to seven years, prices uh, people expect would be relatively stable. So people are going for more shorter term contracts. Uh, they could be five years, they could be 10 years. In some cases, they could be as uh, low as two years, three years contracts as well. Um, 
but but southeast asian countries would probably still want to sign contracts to provide um essentially a stable supply of fuel to gas power stations that they are building for example um and they may i, I would say that many people would say that 80 to 20% split between some kind of long term contract whether 5 years or 20 years a different issue but probably 80% uh, uh is a good number to look at that in terms of total imports and 20% is a good number to look at as a share of uh, imports from the spot market but we have to remember that contracts have flexibility in lng uh lng markets so you may choose to import a little bit less than the uh average contracted quantity on the contract uh, the contract allows you the flexibility to do so and you would do that if spot price is cheap and you would import more spot lng can asia support multiple trading hubs that's an interesting question um it probably can in a few years time um but for a trading hub to happen and for the trading hub to be successful uh, there are multiple ingredients you might uh, need supporting infrastructure um and for that very reason singapore is building more regasification capacity so that traders can come in and store cargoes there if needed um uh, so that's one important thing the other important issue would be how open and liberalized and deregulated uh, the energy markets are uh, because you can't get a transparent pricing signal if you have a very regulated energy markets where gas can't compete on economics compared to other fuels and in some markets um these issues have been tried and tested and uh, the development is further ahead compared to certain other markets in asia but yes japan uh, has tried to uh, and still aspires to create a trading hub uh, china aspires to create a trading hub and i would say given that the demand for lng in the region is increasing rapidly um it is indeed possible that in 10 15 years time we have at least two trading hubs in asia pacific singapore has got a lead start uh, but even in europe you have multiple uh, pricing signals and trading hubs uh, so it's entirely possible we see that in asia this was a fantastic overview of the region's uh, uh, energy needs also the role of renewables but then also the region's role in some of these energy uh, resources uh, including uh, lng uh, that you gave us today thank you very Thanks much ashish for joining us